For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thank you for joining me on Psych Up Live. Today we're going to be speaking about domestic violence, a dangerous problem that persists across culture, race, age, sexual orientation, religion, gender, socioeconomic, and educational levels. It can happen to couples who are married, living together, or even dating couples. Today, our perspective is going to be a personal one. You're going to hear the personal story of domestic violence from our guest, Betty Hafner, who, like too many, has the wisdom of a survivor. She is the author of a beautiful but at times terrifying book, Not Exactly Love, a memoir. Betty Hafner was a teacher and counselor in high schools and colleges for over 25 years, In addition to this memoir, she's the author of two practical career change books, Where Do I Go From Here? and The Nurse's Guide to Starting a Small Business. She writes a monthly column, a book column in Montgomery County, Maryland. Betty Hafner, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Well, Suzanne, I am thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Okay, Betty, let's start out with the question, what made you write this memoir? Um, I would say this was something that I never in a million years would have ever thought I would have done. I'm not the kind of person who always thought she would write a book about her life. But after I uh, retired from teaching, I began to take writing classes. We have a wonderful writer center here, and I was dabbling in mainly personal stories, uh, little essays. And in my case, I was enjoying writing very funny things about kooky parts of my life. Um, first time I was ever on a nude beach, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, right. Uh-huh. And uh, so that's what my writing uh, peers were expecting from me. Uh, and one time, I, the course was coming up, we did a workshop, so you had to bring a piece, and I really was like, oh, geez, what am I going to write about? Well, I started looking through my books of prompts, the little quick few words that are supposed to pique your interest, get your creativity flowing, 
And, um, oh, I looked through numbers of books. And then I saw two words, if only, dot, dot, dot. And I thought, well, I know what I'd write there. And what I wrote, that first essay, was a now revised first chapter of my book. And what it was was the story of my wedding day when I was in my parents' home, just um, my husband-to-be, Jack, and his family, and simply my immediate family. They were downstairs waiting. Um, I'm wearing my outfit that wasn't really a wedding gown, but I'm heading down the stairs ready to get married. And the heel of my shoe clips the edge of the steps. I start tumbling. It's, the heel falls off. No one could see me behind, you know, behind a wall where the steps were, fortunately. So I ran back up to my room and I yelled, I'm okay, I'm okay. And up in my room, I thought, oh my God. This must be a sign. For the first time, he had punched me in the arm two days, just two days before we were ready to get married. Now, the if only part of my essay was, um, if only I had the kind of family that would have like, oh, honey, how are you doing? Run upstairs. Can I help? Oh, that must be so embarrassing. That's okay. No one cares. You know, Mm. Um, but I didn't. I had the kind of family that was distant. They let me be independent, which in many ways is terrific. But they also were not, no one came up. No one was there with me. Mm. If they had been, would I have maybe said, you know, told them what had happened? Would I have started to cry without wanting to tell them what happened? But no one did. So I did the only thing I knew how to do, just the very Betty thing was to soldier up, go down the steps, barefoot this time, and do what I was supposed to do, do what everyone expected me to do. And that's what I did. So I took that essay to my writing group, and they are, well, you got to tell us more. And mm-hmm. I thought this was this relationship was not something that I thought of. It was decades ago. Um, but I said, well, you know, I actually do remember the day that I said to myself, that's it, the end, I'm going. And um, so I wrote that. And, of course, they said, please, what happened in between? So mm-hmm. that's how it all got started. And I would say I worked on it for about five years, but I would say... I actually didn't know it was going to be a memoir for maybe the first, you know, I didn't know until the first three years were over. Well, I want our readers to know this memoir reads like fiction. You can hardly put it down. So what Betty started as a, if only, becomes a very powerful picture that I think may be very helpful to the listeners and anyone who picks it up. Betty, one of the things in it, and it's sort of caught in your title, not exactly love, would you say that people, even though they're being battered, stay in love with the abuser? You know, I really, at one point in the book, I, I'm saying, you know, we, start, we started using the word love to each other. I used it. He had used it very early on, and I started 
using the word love, feeling the word love. But as now, decades later, looking back at it, I say there was definitely a physical attraction. There was definitely a yearning for love. There was definitely a hope um, that this would work out. Um, There were elements of love, but it was not exactly love. Um, If I may just say, for um, years, perhaps the first three or four years, I called it five years and ten months, and that was the duration of our marriage. But Mm. I actually said, I feel like I want to look for the essence of the story a little bit more. And so I actually looked within the book and what I had written. And I said, that really expresses it to me. You know, it Mm -hmm. really expresses what I'm going through. The fact that I loved, I wanted to love, I wanted to love with my whole heart. But obviously you can't when fear is a big part of the relationship. Well, one of the things that you talk about, and I'm going to ask you to read a little piece at this point, is what I call the necessary denial. In order for often for women or men who are the victims to stay and to keep looking for love and to go through these cycles of the good, the bad, and the ugly, they have to almost have a denial that they're not with a safe person. And I think you really capture it. Maybe you can read it for our listeners, starting on page 77, The Outbursts. Okay. His outbursts came so fast, so unexpectedly, that the part of me that carried self-awareness shut down. It had to. How could I live my life being aware of what was happening to me? I had to find an inaccessible part of my mind where I could stash these incidents and make them go away. And I did. I kept them all to myself. I didn't tell a soul, not my family, not my friends. I hated thinking about what it would say about me and the man I picked to marry. So the incidents kept happening and I went on with my life, a lonely, deadened version of my life. Mm. So it's such a powerful way of talking about what I've heard people say when they say they become, they're there, but they're not really there. There's such uh-huh. isolation. You, you really had, didn't tell people about it because you were afraid of judgment, Betty? That was probably a big part. I mean, I cannot imagine my lips, you know, mouthing the words. I just can't imagine that they would have come from me. It was just so much not a part of anything I ever expected to be involved in. So um, shame and obviously thinking when I would think of people's faces and think of saying something to them about it, I just... I just couldn't bear so it's it out in the air. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had not thought of it. You're almost saying you, it was so unexpected that it was almost unspeakable. We talk about certain traumas for which you cannot even put the words to it because you can't quite conceptualize that this could be my life. I mean, maybe that's what makes writing the book so important. 
but you certainly tell us something about survival, meaning you had to be like a dead version of yourself, which is painful to hear. Um, I think you raised a very good point. And um, if you're getting it from what I said, that's terrific, because that really was the way it was. It was unspeakable. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just not something that I could talk about. It's, it's, I think it's very common to many survivors that when someone says what happens, they can't tell. They can't quite tell. Mm-hmm. Now, let, let me ask you, when you describe the families a little bit at that little glimpse of the wedding ceremony, some, mm-hmm. people, say, some people say that both the abuser and the victim need to know it doesn't start with them. Do you think the origins and the history played a part in his abuse and your tolerating it or the fact that you even ended up in such a place? I would, uh, let me start with the easy one. And the easy one is my husband, Jack. And that is, he was brought up, he was raised in a family with an extremely abusive father. His mother also was um, very, I call her a jitterbug. She was just a nervous, uh, hyper, um, not very, very clear thinking, good natured, good person, but uh, not somebody uh, with any kind of strength to protect herself and her boys, especially her oldest boy, and that was Jack, from terrible rampages. Um, mm. So this is what he grew up with. Um, what I grew up with was almost the, op- <laughs> the opposite, and it's a little bit harder for me to, um, to give uh, anybody a clear version of why I think, uh, of why my life might have um, been part of it. But our family was basically a quiet family. I had a sister who was actually ADD, so her fussing was kind of the background of, um, of my life, her fussing about this, blah, 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 about that. But just in terms of sharing things, in terms of seeing um, affection, in terms of seeing anything violent, there were, you know, arguments in the house. I believe my mother slapped me at my face a couple of times, probably not much. Um, but... My family was just not one. I even say, I I hadn't thought of this before I wrote the book, but I don't think I had ever seen an adult hit another adult. Mm -hmm. So it was just not something that, that I was aware of. My father, being very shy, very, very shy and distant and not interactive with me at all, um, I think that definitely played a, a big part in in me looking for something, needing something more from a man, but not having really any definition of <laughs> lines, you know, what you don't go over and so on. Um, mm. Because Jack was very attentive to me, very loving, and um, so that was something that felt very good to me. You know, one of the things you say at some point is that you don't remember being hugged much by mom and certainly not by dad. And then when we look and you see the character of the person of Jack in the book, 
he is constantly at you, sometimes in a loving way, but when you really look at it, it's very much more driven by his need. I mean, if you can't be available to him, if you can't pay attention, if you can't regulate his anxiety with sexual connection, he's very, very quick to be violent. Absolutely. That was a, that was a very, very clear insight I had in writing the book. That um, I don't know if um, you're familiar with the writings of Lundy Bancroft. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, he is. He is a wonderful researcher and, and psychologist. He writes from a man's point of view, and mm-hmm. uh, reading reading things that he says about the different types of abuser. And I clicked immediately when I read the about the one who wants me, a person, the abuser wants the abused to be the one that's always there taking care of all of his needs. And that mm-hmm. characterized us to a T. So it would make sense if you meet up with someone who wants every minute to be with you, it could look like love and yet really be much more need than love. Absolutely. Uh, Something that I'm uh, aware of is that uh, in some men, not so much in Jack, but I know in some men, uh, Jack would write me poems in the very beginning. Uh, Then I realized the poems stopped after like the first month or two. Uh, Mm -hmm. But they can actually really become very smooth and very gracious and very loving. And I had quite a bit of that. But that is something, um, you know, that kind of attention and pouring, outpouring of love right in the very beginning is sometimes a trap. Oh, yes. It's, of course, it, people, it would be seductive. It would be something you could need, but it actually is more of a trap than it looks like. Betty, we're going to have to take a brief break, so I want our listeners to know you've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking about domestic violence, the real inside story with Betty Hafner, the author of Not Exactly Love, a memoir. I also want to share, for those who are listening, that the The domestic violence hotline number is 1-800-799 and the word SAFE, S-A-F-E. Stay with us. We have much more to share. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the bioeconomy, tune into TerraTech with host Jim Lane. Every day, new and substantial products are in our lives. What we wear, eat, and drink in our travels and in our health. TerraTech will spotlight these products and show you where and how they are being used. Listen for TerraTech live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join the innovators and the innovations and move forward. 
Where can you learn about EasyWayPromotions.com's social media marketing, brand positioning, and more? Easy Talk Live. Where can you get tuned into celebrities in the business world? Easy Talk Live. Where can you learn about entrepreneurment? Easy Talk Live. Every week, host Eric Easy Zuli and his celebrity friends talk about global causes, offer tips and tricks that you can use right now on social media, and give you the chance to promote your projects on Easy Talk Live. Every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Betty Hafner. She's the author of... Not Exactly Love, a memoir, and we're we're really hearing from Betty the inside experience of domestic violence. Betty, we had a um, earlier guest on Psych Up Live, Sher- Dr. Sherry Hamby, and I know you, you said you heard that show. Mm-hmm. She's all about resilience, but one of her books is called Battered Women Smarter Than You Think. And what's powerful about it is that she really points out the way women find lifelines to keep them afloat as they prepare in some way to get out. That you never just get out unless you're prepared or you might, you you, you face maybe even more violence. So I was wondering, what would you say your lifelines were? Well, I was completely enthralled with my job. I know, I think I was a born counselor because when I became a a high school counselor, I just felt alive. I felt like I was doing what I was meant to do. And it was a busy public school, so of course I was dealing with changing classes and uh, all sorts of things, but I was also able to really, you know, work with kids who were having who were having issues, uh, issues with their parents, uh, issues with drugs. It was in the early seventies, and kids were starting to use um, drugs more, especially marijuana at that at that point in time. And so, when I would get in my car and turn on the radio and drive. It took me about an hour to get to my um, work. I just was in another world. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on until the moment I drive and drove home and got close to uh, my house, I was in that 
competent world, that, you know, funny Betty world, uh, friend, I had friends, uh, and my, some of my friends there, particularly one woman, uh, eventually became someone very late in a relationship, but I find I became comfortable with speaking out to her. Uh, about it, and that turned out to be part of my process of learning to leave, because that's how I think of it, that it's not, you don't leave, you have to learn how to leave, you have to take steps to leave, to, yes. to, to make it stay. Yes, it's, it's interesting that finding a confidant along the way becomes crucial. I want to point out, because you describe it so well, that so Betty's lifeline, and she describes that you describe at one point that getting your new job was like winning the lottery. You could see how much you loved being a counselor. But And here's something I think for people to be aware of in terms of identifying someone who may be more abusive than you think. That is, there's not an incident you describe, Betty, where you're excited about doing something, you have a new colleague you're working with, where he doesn't put you down, criticize uh-huh interrogate um, so that your lifeline even gets eroded by this man's difficulty with letting you have anything beside him. You're absolutely right. And you're actually reminding me of an incident that I might have put in the book if I had thought of it. But he came out to a function, uh, Jack, my husband, came out to a function uh, with the other counselors at school, and it was an evening function, and there was a young substitute counselor who was kind of a kooky guy, and the two of them got drunk and loud, and, and Jack, drinking was not an issue in, a, in his anger. Uh, but the two of them got got drunk and loud and silly and offensive, and um, it was, you know, it was something where I'm now seeing just whatever he could do to under, you know, undermine yes. it, to mm-hmm. to uh, ruin it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Try that's to ruin what- it. And that's part of the profile of an abuser very often. Now, somewhere along the line, you meet up with someone, a, a man, a counselor, another another colleague who treats you very well, and you have a mini affair with him. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that in the midst of this situation that you were struggling with? The interesting part is I... I had not wanted to put that in the book. I thought that's a diversion. That's something, you know. It's a little like, oh, you know, having a, you know, having an affair with a colleague. Oh, for heaven's sakes, you know, what was she thinking, mm-hmm. you know? But when I started to think of what I was, re- what was really going on, I thought that's something that I'd like other people to hear. Mm-hmm. I allowed myself to have this affair, and again, it was a mini affair. We both had to be, he was actually a fairly straight, you know, straight and narrow guy. We had to be so careful about when we met. Um, and I think, I, I think it was a part of me that was identifying what I really would 
want in life, and that would be somebody who would enjoy me, somebody who I could talk to things comfortably with, laugh with, and a part of me, of course, would have loved it if I could have just said goodbye and gone on with this <laughs> this new mm. man, but mm-hmm. that doesn't happen. Life isn't like that, and I really wanted to share that, you know, that part of my thinking, that sort of magical thinking that, uh, oh, this feels so good. Oh, good. Now, you know. Well, the, the other thing you... Yeah, well, it's it's so interesting. Our listeners are going to probably be surprised that you're the one who tells Jack, your husband, about it. And you say it with a kind of nothing left to lose feeling and a wish. Well, if anything's going to destroy this marriage, I hope, maybe it'll be this. But of course it doesn't because he's hanging in and he's going to tell the guy off. And as you say, I'm stuck to Jack with crazy glue. Yep. There is a almost like I I tried to do anything to get out of here, and it's interesting. You don't feel yet that at that point that you can get out, and that's when you start to take some of these little steps, which are really gigantic steps. I think you develop a room of your own in the house you buy. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, that that is huge. When you talk about lifelines. I, as a young person, I knew it as a child. I knew as a child that I loved to create, that I loved to draw. I was always, you know, doing something, making something, creating something. Um, But for some reason in high school, you know, I wasn't taking art. I was taking, like, Latin and French, so you couldn't take it, you know, you couldn't take um, any elective Elective. like that. right. Yeah, so... um, but I was starting to really feel that part of me that, that wanted to, to express itself, that wanted to come out. So I started taking um, some art classes, and I just said, I deserve a place to keep my stuff. Now, it happened to be in our little TV room. We had such a small house. There was no such thing as really a room of my own. But it did sort of became, uh, become my room. Um, the mm. room where, you know, I could really kind of let myself go and, and um, you know, it was my place. Well, I think when someone's in a very abusive situation, whether it's a room, a corner, or a, a um, drawing pad, it's, it is a lifeline because it takes the person out of the fray and allows them to focus in on something special about themselves. So when I read about it, I thought, well, that was really a very big step and an important one. And then I guess our readers should know, at some point you dare to go to an emergency room and no one says anything, even though they look sad as they pat you up. Mm-hmm. And that, and then at one point you even risk calling the police. Right, right. Both of those things happened after I started seeing a therapist. He and I went to, um, well, we had several therapy uh, incidents, but um, experiences. But we found an excellent therapist to use as a couple, and so Jack went with me for the first few times, but when it became very clear that the therapist did not identify me as the problem, 
uh, he stormed out in the middle of the session. And just having that a few times with that therapist, I said, I am not giving this up for hell or high water. And I stayed in therapy. And that was where I started to, to really get some strength to take some steps, you know, to let the, you know, to let the bed be cold one night, mm-hmm. um, you know, and uh, that w- I just had to put in that because that was it's, so instrumental. I um, think that I think when someone can get a counselor or a therapist, and you had an extremely good one, and he was very quiet, but when you know someone out there knows your pain it does give you sometimes to to act in your own behalf and that's what you that's really what you start to do I want to read what you said about that therapist you said figuring out what I was going to do I, I it felt impossible but I knew in the therapy I was in the right place the room that would save me or rather I understood now the person I was becoming in that room that would save me. So it was a wonderful and important step toward your steps out of this nightmare. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Now, you finally at one point have tremendous courage, and I want you to, if you could, read that piece for us, um, starting on page 171, the bottom. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes, it just the the incident had happened um, again uh, in our little TV room. Um, so uh, Jack, you know, stormed out of it and stormed up the stairs. And um, I remember this. Oh, may I say one thing about this? Oh, of course, this, sure. This particular scene. I would say it's actually one of my favorite scenes, not necessarily because it's so fabulous or so dramatic or so, you know, it's really quite undramatic. But what this was, was, I understand, a turning point for me. This was a moment when suddenly something shifted. And um, so what I am doing is just standing in my room after you know, sort of uh, rubbing my jaw that is sore from him having punched it. Now, alone in my room, my jaw, where his hand punched it, throbs with pain. For all I know, he and I may have been in there earlier that night, laughing together as Archie Bunker and Meathead were squaring off. Things could turn upside down in an instant. But I'm in my room for its emptiness and its silence, thankful that I have a place to settle myself down and think. His words knocked all thoughts out of my head. All I want to do is curl up on the couch and grab a pillow to hug. I move towards it, but something keeps me standing still. This time, I don't want to sit down. I don't want to get more comfortable in this house. Who knows what waits for me upstairs? I stare out the window at the blackness. There's frost on the panes where the cold meets the heat. Nothing is moving on our street. Most houses are dark. Everyone's gone to bed, and I am so, so tired. 
A shiver runs through me, and my body holds on to the chill. I know I'm in a warm house, in my cozy room with a sofa and books and TV, but looking out into the night, I feel as frightened as if I were standing alone on an ice floe in the black Arctic night. I can't go out. Not now, I think. Where would I go? I take long, slow breaths and cross my arms tight against my chest as though I'm hugging myself. But then I turn out the light next to the couch and take my long winter coat from the closet. Without a sound, I grab my keys from the kitchen counter and slide the back door open, barely wide enough for me to fit through sideways. I whisper goodbye to the cat who has followed me. Then I dash alongside the house and get into my car at the curb. As if I have just awakened, I am sharply aware that I'm sitting there in the driver's seat of my car with my hands clutching the wheel and directing it where to go. I drive to the end of our block and turn right, heading east to the Holiday Inn. It's really such a victorious piece and such a victorious move. It, it was a huge, it was a huge move, and that's the kind of thought that I would have as I was, you know, in the years I was writing. I would say, you know, oh, I remember standing in the room. It's like, oh, you know, right? You're going to write a, you know, you're going to write a scene about standing in a room, and the more that scene insinuated itself you know, on me or in me, I just knew that I had to write it and I came to see what came out when I when I wrote it. Well, it's beautiful and powerful. We're going to have to take a break, but I, I want any listener out there who doesn't think she can dare at some point leave, no, there are small steps that can lead you, to, lead you to safety. They usually include having somebody listen to your story along the way. We're going to be right back. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Betty Hafner about the inside story of domestic violence. She's the author of Not Exactly Love, a memoir. And for anyone's information, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799 and the word SAFE, S-A-F-E. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? 
It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Betty Hafner about domestic violence, the inside story. Um, So, Betty, at this point uh, in your story, somehow you managed to literally leave almost with nothing but your clothes and your pocketbook. Correct. And what what made that final step possible? Well... I would say, as I mentioned early on, there are just steps that I had to take. It was a whole process. And you mentioned the process. The process was letting other people know, having a confidant, uh, calling the police one time, going to a hospital ER one time, then being in therapy and having a good friend to talk to. So... um, there was, I would say, for the last maybe six months or so, I knew deep down that I was going to do it. I knew I was sure that I was going to do it. And uh, I just didn't know how, and I didn't know when. And it was one of those conversations. One of the, It's not a conversation really in therapy, but one of those um, times when I was just saying, oh, I you know, this is why I can't leave. This would happen. He would do this and do that. And then all of a sudden, it was like the summer. I won't have my job. I won't have him running up there knocking on the door when I'm talking to a student and he's, you know, terrifying me and terrifying everyone. It would be in the summer. And there was just an, an incident in our in our house, uh, simple incident, same. Not you know, nothing was extraordinary about it. It was uh, I wasn't even going to have to put any makeup on the bruises or anything. It simply was a point in time 
early in the summer when I said, that's it, I'm going. Hmm. Okay. And so you do, uh, with the help of a couple, and you actually go on to separate and divorce. And at one point, we find you sitting across from Jack. I think it's months after the divorce. And he tells you he's with someone else. And you say, I'm happy for you, but I have to ask you, you don't hit her, do you? And what does he say? Well, you know, I remember that so clearly. And it just, it was just something I had to say. What Mm. it was actually, uh, specifically, was it was, we, uh, I left in 76 and we um, signed divorce papers three years later. Mm. So uh, there had been quite a long time. I know he was in therapy. I was in therapy. Um, he had said, he had contacted me and said that he was ready to get married to someone else. And so um, we met in the city uh, where I lived at the time in New York City and um, at a bar, and uh, signing the papers, I just, I just couldn't say goodbye and you know hug because we were really having that kind of a relation, uh, a talk, without asking if he hit her. And my question made him cry, made me cry because he just said he just apologized. I am so so sorry. I am so, so sorry. Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons why I could see me asking. I'm I'm not sure, because all I know is I did it, and now I have to look back decades later and ask. I think part of me wanted to confirm what I was believing, and that was that he had changed. It was too late for us. It was not something I wanted I would have to live with our history. But I think I wanted to know that he changed. And I pretty much assumed that our lives would never, you know, cross over again, which is actually, there was one, one quick time. But um, our lives have really not, not uh, crossed over again since then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I may, there may have been a part of it, uh, that might have wondered, you know, was it me? You know, was it me who brought it out? Um, I don't know, but but I'm glad I did because it it was a kind of a cleansing, you know, a mm. cleansing, a forgiveness. Um, and I'm glad, also, I, I'm glad I asked. Well, it also gave you the opportunity to bear witness to the offense that broke this relationship. Um, because you clearly clearly said, because this is what you did to me. And in some ways, you know, the the global question is, can men change? And the the answer is a complicated one, because we have to believe people can change, but they can change only if they want to change, and they're willing to do really an extraordinary amount of work, of undoing, and really self-reflection. But um, we certainly know that you changed. Uh, Just quickly... Um, first of all, how would our listeners get to buy and read this wonderful book? How can they find it? 
Um, um, the book is available wherever books are sold, which means all the biggies um, online, Amazon, and Barnes and Noble, etc. Et uh, it's also uh, available in independent bookstores. I'm a big independent bookstore fan. They probably most won't have it on their shelves. They're too small to have all the books on the shelves, but they can easily get it. So uh, wherever books are are found. Okay. Now, obviously, to read your epilogue, there's a life after, and you do remarry, have a son. Uh-huh. Um, how, how come you risked remarrying? Why did you take a chance like that? Well, that's a very good question, and uh, here's, here's my answer. My answer is, after I left, I really wanted nothing to do with a guy. I developed friendships easily right away with um, some women I taught with. Um, I was just having a blast doing different things, traveling. We were traveling together. Um, I did some other, you know, some other things uh, with my career where I was even worked for a semester abroad, just doing mm. things that were really me. You know, getting mm. being physically active—that was something that that I really hadn't done. That I should have been doing. That's a big part of me, but but uh, not something I was doing um, in my during my marriage. So I really was not interested in having a boyfriend or anything for a while. There were years, a few years after that, where I was interested in having lots of experiences with men, but that didn't come right away. And I was eventually, I mean, I wanted children badly. That's a big part of my story. I wanted children Mm -hmm. badly, but I really was not in any hurry. Even though my 30s were ticking away, I wasn't in any hurry. But um, at a group summer house out on east end of Long Island, um, I met my husband. And mm-hmm. um, so that was, uh, I met him five years after um, I left the marriage. What's and so interesting, yeah, what's so wonderful about what you're saying is you first had a relationship with yourself for a number of years and the connections with people and your athletic side and then went back to dating. So that's a very important step because then you perhaps knew yourself and loved yourself differently. Exactly. I love the the fact that you said love yourself because that's really that's really what it's all about. And that is, you know, finding, you know, feeling that love for yourself, the same kind of love for yourself that you would have over, you know, a beloved child or, you know, parents. It's it's just treating yourself like you would any loved one. And uh mm-hmm. It's, it's too bad it doesn't come automatically, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah, doesn't it's, always. it's not always there at first, it's true. We're, we're going to have to stop. Do you want to give a quick take-home message to our listeners, Betty? Well, my take-home message probably would be for anybody who is involved in a relationship that's abusive, and I'm aware that abuse, uh, emotional abuse is just as troubling and scary uh, and confusing as physical abuse. Anyone um, who who feels that way, uh, that 
that there are other people who know what you feel and that if you can find somebody to talk to, that's very important. As far as people who are not involved in relationships, abusive relationships, but see it, which happens all the time because I'm asked questions, what to do when someone helps. Be the listening ear, not the person coming up with do this, do that, do that. Do the other thing, the listening ear, what you say to the person who's having the abuse, you say, I am afraid for you. I care for you. That is how you reinforce, reinforce it. Tell me, get it off your chest. Let me hear. Let me feel what you feel. Now I'm afraid for you, and I hope Wonderful. I can help you. So to be a compassionate presence, I love what you just said. It's just wonderful. Be that listener. Terrific. Um, We're going to have to stop. I want to especially thank you, Betty Hafner, for really letting us today into your life and passing forward some of these powerful lessons learned. Um, You know, this is the voice of someone who deserved more and found a way to get it, and she's wanting, that's her message, listen to those who need a helper and give yourself the self-love and the resilience to to step out of something that's destructive and abusive. Thank you so much, Betty. Oh, you're welcome. I've loved talking to you, Suzanne. Thank you. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this show by 6 p.m. as a podcast and any of my shows as a podcast on my host site, my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, and on iTunes under Voice America, Psych Up Live, Remember to drop me a comment or question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care, thank you, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america variety channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit VoiceAmerica.com. the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management.